0: Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and families and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook or thedjburr on Instagram. Good morning, and welcome to another edition of Making an Addict. I am here with my good friend, Christy Alexander, who's also a therapist. Welcome, Christy.
1: Thank you, DJ. I'm glad to be here. Yay,
0: I'm glad. I know, it's been a while. It really has. Thank you for coming to my, my studio. You're
1: welcome. <laughs> I love this neighborhood, and it's always nice to see you, and yeah so yeah my full name um is christian marie alexander which is unusual for a woman i go by christy my business is under christian just you know in case people don't know that okay honestly it's been an asset because with one of my specializations being lgbtq veterans and and military they see the name see that i seem to be female-bodied and uh, somehow somehow, that seems to be one point of attraction that I had never anticipated, but I'll go with it.
0: Okay, right. You know, we're, you're providing a space for people. Yeah. Right? And, and if they feel comfortable. They
1: might, might, whatever they might pick up on to feel connected, go for, I'll go for it.
0: Excellent. Well, you know, th- this show, Making an Addict, is about... The, the addict, but also about the family members and also about the providers who treat addicts, right? And so I know that you do this work as well, yes. and you work with recovering addicts. Can you tell us about your experience as a therapist working with uh, recovering addicts?
1: Absolutely. So in my work as a therapist, let's see, I got my master's, um, in 2006 and started working in the field in a variety of settings. um, At that point, I was still not sober myself. Although at at that stage, I, I still didn't believe I had a problem. I was still deep in denial. I'm familiar. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And people could say on the outside that I was very high functioning, very perfectionistic, very, um, I could always do well in school. That was one of the settings where, where, um, I thrived. It was real life <laughs> life or life outside of school where things started to fall apart. Just the day to day paying bills, going to a job every day. Um, and my very first job was children's long-term inpatient psychiatric treatment. So it was like going from the frying pan into the fire. Ooh. So what I would say is this, I'm not a CDP, I'm an I'm a LMHC licensed mental health counselor, but my own experience in recovery and different training has made me somebody who, although I don't officially um, treat substance abuse issues, I'm very well informed and as a trauma specialist, I, I really My passion is helping people with trauma, start to find meaning in life again and heal the soul wounds. I consider them deep, deep wounds to the soul is one way to think about it, Mm -hmm. to the self is another way to think about it and start to feel whole again. And addiction is a huge part of that. It was for me. Um, It is for me. And so I'm able to have that depth of experience, even if I'm not talking about my experience with clients necessarily to understand it makes sense. It makes sense that you used. It makes sense that that's what you did to survive and get through. Now let's see if we could do something else.
0: Right, and how long do you think it takes for like, let's say your average client to really understand their trauma history before you can start targeting the addiction?
1: That's a great question, and I would say it varies. Some people come to me having already done some kind of personal work. Some people come to me not even knowing what PTSD is, not not really understanding trauma, just knowing um, maybe a spouse Especially, I I do a lot of work with um, active military and veterans. Um, And then I have another subgroup that's like teenagers that everybody else has given up on. I I tend Mm. to get them and I love them. I was one of them (laughs) in some ways. But um, how long it takes for somebody to break through that denial anywhere between one hour and their whole life?
0: Right. It I mean, be, it, the, yeah. it, it,
1: the, the variability is so high, uh, but I think honestly, if I'm not able to get some real traction with the person just on sort of breaking through the denial um, within three or four sessions, I start to talk about, you know, motivational interviewing, helping elicit that client's own argument for change. I start to talk to them about things like inpatient, especially if their behavior is dangerous. Yeah. and. and Sometimes I talk about it earlier, but I'm always kind of triaging and, and, and the assessment process never ends. You're always integrating more and information. It
0: never ends.
1: It never ends. Even with ourselves, I, I like to think of, because I'm a nerd, I like to think of us like very complex computers with software. And even the best software needs frequent updates. <laughs> and you got to hit F5 right. and refresh the screen. <laughs> update yourself on yourself and so and so i always try to update my concepts of myself like in in recovery we talk about the set aside prayer yes setting aside our concepts to be open to a new experience so we don't get into fixed mindset but um here's the thing i've got to hit f5 and refresh my concept of clients frequently too and consult and Mm -hmm. um really Work, do do my own work to separate my emotional experience.
0: Yeah, sure, because our case, stuff comes up, too.
1: Yeah, and it, and it always is going to. I think the key is to have that awareness and have processes in our own lives yeah. to work with that so it doesn't start to blind us to the reality that's in front of us. So, so I guess that's a long way of saying it depends and... I'm always looking for what are the limitations, like what are the limitations of my scope of practice as, as a just independent private practice therapist like you. Yeah. Um, luckily with my veteran clients, there's a whole host of other resources and I know most of those pretty well through the VA. Um, my contracts to serve veterans are through the state VA, not federal Washington department of veterans affairs, but there's also, Oh, King County Veterans Levy funds a lot of therapist services. Mine are funded by an RCW. It it was put in place quite a while ago to make sure that veterans had counseling. And Washington is quite progressive in that area. Because as we know, with war trauma, addiction and war trauma go hand in hand, just like with any other kind of trauma, because it wouldn't be PTSD without that escape and avoidance component. Because when terrible stuff it is coming up in your mind. Why would you not? It's actually a healthy coping response to want to escape or avoid until you have a healthy, safe place to process. Yeah. And I try and I reframe that for clients. Like, let's not hate on yourself.
0: This is what you had to do to take care of yourself.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's a parallel process because you and I, I know for me, I have had to and continue to have to talk to my myself and, and especially my younger parts of self in a loving way. I, I literally say, sweetheart, thank God for alcohol and prescription drugs and and, and and all the things that nearly killed me because they actually, the flip side is they allowed me to stay alive to get to the point where I could get help. And truth? I've had an enormous amount of grace. My higher power is so big Although my concept has grown with time, my concept of that higher power. But, my, but I've had a lot of grace and protection. And I see that now. Mm. And I think, yeah, they're on their own pace. Every client <clears throat> is on their own pace and their own timeline. And the best that I can do is keep myself a clear channel and keep myself as healthy as I can t- to be able to reflect back their truth to them, not because I know their truth, but because I'm able to see clearly what they're saying, what they're showing, and maybe shine a light into their blind spots for them.
0: We have to be that mirror. That's what I tell Mm. my clients. I was like, my job is to be a mirror. And I think I stole that from my therapist (laughs) because he says that to me a lot.
1: That's legit. I mean, I can't (laughs) even tell you how much, Dr. James Cis, Sidey, Fremont, that man, that's the first healthy relationship I ever had with a male. And it paved the way for the beautiful relationship I have with my father now. Wow. Who's a military vet from the Navy submarines 30 years. Just, my dad's a lovely human being and he and I connect. He had some alcohol problems back in the day. I, I, I won't say he's an alcoholic. I don't think he identifies as such and really he's doing pretty okay now. But finding that therapist when I was 22 was also a dose of grace, and I've seen him on and off since then. I'm I live a little too far away. I live in Bellevue. He's in Fremont, and I see a woman now, and that's just right for me now. But through that relationship, I mean, I have to say, I even modeled the look of my office after him and my business card. <laughs> he's just he's got that style. He's an East Coast style and man, you know. I nice. always related to that. And someone who grew up back east, so
0: right. <clears throat> But sometimes it, it is our therapist who provides that, that, that new framework for what a healthy relationship looks like. I would say mine uh, did the same. You know, oh. I've worked with mine for five years, and he's the one who said, you need to go to a meeting. Wow. And, and, and I that said, I don't want to fucking go to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I said that every week, right? And sometimes would leave his office and go act out. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to start, (laughs) right, because he was bringing up all, we were bringing up all this trauma, right, that I was not even prepared to deal with, right? I didn't even have any real insight into it. And so he was like really pulling scabs off of of wounds that I kept, you know, putting band-aids on. And sometimes that's what it feels like when our clients are sitting in front of us and we're sitting, we're reflecting back what we're hearing. And it's so hard to hear it.
1: Thank you for saying that, DJ. And that's so true. And I always, huh, I always ch- have to try to remember to step back and say, okay, Christy, you've been working this with this material for how long? I got sober this recent time, most recent time. I, I had been attempting <laughs> to varying degrees getting sober since I was nineteen mm-hmm. and had a near death experience. Um, wow. Being roofied. Um, well not roofy necessarily. I was drugged with ketamine at a party and uh. hurt badly. And university of Washington hospital saved me. Um, but that's the first time I tried to stop drinking. <clears throat> I stopped doing ecstasy at that point. This was the nineties. Ecstasy was the thing, but every time at that point I stopped drinking it's like whack-a-mole. Like I would whack down the drinking thing and something else would pop up. And um, I broke my arm at one point and found pain pills.
0: Mm.
1: And that seemed like a magic, magic bullet to shut my mind off. But then I found benzos. I had a horrible panic attack one time because I'd created my own mess. I can't remember <laughs> the, the lines in the big book, but um, hadn't we put ourselves in a position based on self to be hurt or... Self-created chaos, but, um, I had a panic attack and I'd been given Xanax and that I felt like that was my first spiritual (laughs) experience. Like, oh my God, there's a mind space that is not painful and uncomfortable because I never felt comfortable in my skin growing up. Mm. My very earliest memories were of being uncomfortable, itchy in clothes, anxious and wondering why is life like this even as a small child like I remember writing a short story when I was very young that everybody was concerned about me based on this short story but it was like what's the point of school it, 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 I, I can't stand this anymore it seems like a dog and pony show don't ask me where I learned that phrase Wow. like I don't know why we're here I hate this and I was getting horrible migraines even in kindergarten I remember one time I ran to the bathroom to throw up. And I stayed in there and was sobbing because I didn't have a hall pass and I thought I'd get in trouble and get hit by the teacher. Well, they didn't hit. It wasn't Catholic school in the 50s, but that's how fearful and uncomfortable I was in my skin and you know, migraine. Um, Now I know, oh, this is another interesting piece. Here are the three things that have been instrumental in me being happy and well and, and functioning and hopeful today. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step recovery, um, including Al-Anon, SLAA, lots of ism there. (laughs) So that's been one instrumental thing in in accessing a higher power through that. The other thing has been getting my own therapy and, and doing my work, whatever that is, whatever is the front line of my spiritual and personal development, attending to that. And the other thing has been good medical care. And and for me, that's included naturopathic and alternative medicine because I have celiac disease and a couple other autoimmune disorders. And being born in the 70s in the East Coast, nobody knew what that was. My parents, I mean, did the best they could to help me. And I remember going to a very good allergist um, and later, you know, in early college, a gastroenterologist and their doctors get into the field because they're incredibly committed they're healers, they're, I love doctors and nurses and everybody in the medical field's amazing. In my book, you know, some are a better fit than others, but they didn't have the tools to diagnose what was happening with me at the time. And so I, what I internalized and got messages from others is you're too sensitive, you're crazy, you're um, um, a sensitive snowflake, you're, 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 you um, you have a nervous temperament, you're anxious. Harsh. You, you need to get get control of yourself. You you know, you're too emotional. You're doing this to yourself. You're doing this to yourself. This is your fault. Your fault. You're to blame.
0: I have heard that so much.
1: <sighs> Fuck that noise.
0: Right. <laughs> no, Sorry. absolutely. I, just,
1: I can't really say it any other way, but F that noise. Um I have to say that now because now I know better. I have to give my mom a huge amount of credit because she figured out about co-ops and organic food and naturopaths before it was like a thing. She figured out about yoga before it was a thing. And so my mom got me into that and she goes to a great naturopath in Paulsbow, Washington. We moved here from the East Coast in 95 for the Navy for my dad. But so she referred me to a naturopath in ballard dr molly niedemeyer at emerald city clinic formerly molly linton she's she's a saint as far as i'm concerned and she runs a clinic there and once she got her hands on me <laughs> i was so much better and that was right around the time i was getting sober i, I mm. it, well re- let me rephrase that i first met with her in 2006, and and we started peeling off onion layers. And in 2009, when I got sober, I I became willing to give up the foods that were literally slicing up my gut. Wow. It's horrifying, and it's not just the foods, it's, I won't go on a soapbox about this, but it is part and parcel too, because part of my addiction was treating physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. And then it took on a life of its own, like it talks about in the big book, Sometimes people or could be moderate problem drinkers or even serious problem drinkers And if they get scared enough by the consequences of their addiction, they could stop right and not need a spiritual program for me At some point it crossed that that point of no return and and now I don't need to know for sure. I I don't dare I don't dare ever mess with those substances again and I have to every day create the spiritual condition that allows me to see that to be yes. the person that sees that But, um, but Dr. Molly was able to blow apart, help me blow apart the glass ceiling of how well I thought I could be in life. I'm 38 years old and I went to my 20 year high school reunion the other day. And and yeah, there's a lot of dietary restrictions that I'm on because when you have celiac disease, the main thing is gluten, but it's also the fact that In the United States, we hybridized wheat at some point to make it more resilient as a crop and allow um, more resilient even to putting a pesticide called glyphosate on their Roundup. Most other countries like in, in Europe and Canada recognize that that's a neurotoxin, not very good for people. Right. Here, we still have it, and, and it's debatable. I know only can speak for myself that that is very toxic for me. My constitution is quite sensitive, and I don't look at it as a bad thing now. No. It's just how I am. I'm insensitive to little far. <laughs> and, and, I, and genetically, I've got some mutations that make it hard. My, my MTHFR mutation, COMT, and it makes it harder for my body to clean out gunk. Just right. Just the normal gunk of daily living that we get in modern society. So I've got to be extra careful, and you know... I promised God that I would do whatever it takes to make myself of maximum service in this world. Mm. If my health isn't on point, I can't be of maximum service.
0: Can't show so, up.
1: Sure, it's a bummer not eating gluten and dairy. I would love to just go pig out on pizza like I used to, but you know, I don't want to feel like shit anymore. Right. Because I promise God that I would be of maximum service and I do what it takes in every single day, every single year. It seems that I'm willing to do a little more in that direction. I haven't yet given up the coffee, but I'm like, man, I got to have one thing. <laughs> Cigarettes gone. Um, all these other foods, preservatives gone. You know, let me just have my coffee.
0: Progress, so, not perfection. That's right. Yes. Amen, Amen yes. brother. It's like
1: progress, not perfection. Uh, absolutely. Or is my. my um, millennial sponsees, I have five sponsees, and they're just amazing. Let's just say I have some lovely sponsors and a a lovely sponsor and lovely sponsees. And one of them says, prog, not perf. (laughs) (laughs)
0: perf." (laughs)
1: Hashtag prog, not perf.
0: Right? That's funny. Huh. You know, working with uh, sponsors and sponsees is a a gift, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Because we get to, to do our work. And we also have to help other people do their work, and, and it's then different, a for us. right? Absolutely, and it's different from working with clients. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because there's yeah. different there's different boundaries yeah. that that we have. Oh right? yeah,
1: experience, strength, and hope is a currency with both. But I talk about my experience, strength, and hope much, much, much more directly. Um, with sponsees because that's what we do Mm -hmm. and and we read the book and and the role is different whereas with clients my experience strength and hope is kind of that cushion in the background that gives me depth and perspective yes that's the way i look at it um but it's two different roles but i don't really have trouble separating the two maybe i used to at first but that was because I needed Alanon and boundaries, huh. <laughs> to be honest. How
0: do you, do your clients know a bit about your recovery journey?
1: Some do, and and I always check in with my higher power. Um, I've I was taught by fabulous professors at Western and elsewhere that you know, a certain amount of self-disclosure used judiciously for the client's benefit can be very powerful. And I've found that to be true. Yes. I just really check in about that. But but I do sometimes. And, and most clients know a few things. In fact, I've had to be more clear recently. And I consulted with a mentor about this. Earlier, I told you this, earlier this year, I had breast cancer and, I've, and I went through treatment. And my mentor said, you know, Christy, if you don't, Say something to clients about this, they're going to notice that it will, you're out for a long time, you're tired, it, you know, you had surgery, and they're going to assume the worst, especially anxious people or people with trauma who have fear of abandonment. Absolutely. And so I had to write something up and, and let people know and talk about it because it wouldn't be to their best interest to just try to pretend like I'm not a human being. Right. So, absolutely. I have to model that appropriate boundary and self disclosure. What do you think about that?
0: I absolutely support that. It just came Some up for me.
1: have different opinions, but okay, it just came up it for me. It just your... came
0: up for me, <laughs> me in my own therapy where my therapist kept rescheduling. Ah. And in five years, that was not the case. And I was like, like what something's is up. something's up? And because I was in crisis. And so uh, my dog died recently. And so and I was in crisis. Thank oh. you. And I was in crisis and I really needed these appointments and they yeah. kept getting canceled. And I'm like, what the fuck?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. And I would
0: email him and his assistant would respond. And I'm like, okay, I need you to stay off my you email.
1: Dissing me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
0: I went into him and I said, and, and I said to him, I said, I'm confused. Right. right. Uh, and I'm concerned. Because this is a new pattern of behavior and it's brand new. Yeah. So I would like some clarity.
1: Good for you. And what
0: oh he God. said to me was, I've been battling pneumonia.
1: Oh, my God. And
0: he was like going to work and trying to show up for people and was making like half a day and then having to go home. And I'm like, oh, my God. I and By the time I had this conversation with him, he was doing better. Right. But. You know, I knew something was up. We know.
1: Yeah, we We know. know. Because you
0: know what? My abandonment shit was coming up.
1: DJ, thank you for telling me this because this just validates everything that I struggled with about telling clients this because you'll have people and friends who say, oh no, they're in the, to me what I think is the old model. Like the therapist should be like this weird blank slate. I'm sorry. I just, (laughs) and that story really helps me to see if I were in their shoes, I would want to know enough information so that I know what's happening. Right, That's and all. he yeah.
0: is that blank slate. You know, he's a psychologist, it's and he's old he's old school. And I yeah. said, "Thank you for the the disclosure. I know that this was personal, and I yeah. appreciate it." He says, "Well, you asked for clarity, so I, I thought I needed to provide that." And
1: good for you, and I, and, and the fact that you were able to do this this respectful self advocacy and communication speaks to the work that you've done
0: and it was hard (laughs)
1: i'm sure it was i mean i'm sure i can only imagine because that stuff is hard for me like oh my god honestly cancer has been a gift because um the silver lining is (laughs) i had a moment with my mom and and i love my mom she's done a lot of her work but we we had quite the quite the relationship and we've also helped each other grow um but lots and lots of growth with cancer because one day, you know, uh, I was meeting them in Edmonds for a family lunch for Mother's Day and I was in the middle of radiation. I just had a TIA, which is a mini stroke.
0: Oh God. Don't
1: recommend it. Um, as it it, it was a response to this chemo drug, tamoxifen and estrogen blocker. I've always had weird paradoxical responses to medicines. And now I know it's the gene mutations and stuff. There's a lot of literature about it coming out and naturopaths have known for 20 years and it's finally filtering into mainstream medicine. But anyway, so I I had the instinct that tamoxifen wasn't a good medicine for me, but I was scared and Seattle Cancer Care Alliance is fabulous and they were just doing the standard treatment, but I had a four-day migraine where I lost a chunk of time and then my executive functioning was bad, my emotion regulation. I mean, I am an expert in assessing and working with traumatic brain injury, which I've had a couple of those hard knock life, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was like, something's wrong with me. And I took myself in and got a neurologist and, you know, referral and sure enough TIA. So, um, um, that said, I was very fragile emotionally at that stage. And I was tired and I, driving was hard for me. Driving from Bellevue to Edmonds was hard and, so I had parked and and I just was out of the car walking and I, apparently I walked right by the restaurant where they were. Well, I, I haven't been to Edmonds in years. My mom and dad go there all the time because um, there's a ferry and my sister's more north. But so she comes out of the restaurant and she's like, okay, space cadet, we're over here. And and and, and she just, my whole life has, has like, you know, I was diagnosed with ADD in college, but as a kid, it was all of this stuff like, How can you be so smart and so stupid at the same time or Uh, you have no common sense you're so drifty which i I could smack her if she ever says that to me again uh, or like you're so spacey or you don't care you're not motivated and it was all the stuff that became my self-talk and so at that moment i was able to say mom i need you to be really nice to me i have cancer and i started crying and she was she was like oh my god you're right i'm so sorry but see that was my codependent is I experienced her as more emotionally fragile than myself yeah. when I was small. And she was, she, was, she yeah. was depressed and anxious and a young Navy wife moved across the country with no one. And then my dad's out to sea. I mean, they both grew up baby boomer, like with the whole scarcity narrative of the great depression and their parents and fear and scarcity and there's never enough money. I mean, all that oh. shit, right? right? Generational trauma and things so they had their baggage but here's the deal that's who they were 35 years ago they have they have done their work
0: mm-hmm.
1: a- and and so i realized at a certain point in alan that i was not responding to my parents as they are today and they do have their foibles just like anyone i was responding to them like they were 35 years ago i hadn't updated that software that was humbling to see my part yes i was still acting like they can't handle the truth about me Better not share my truth with anyone because then you've got your problem and their reaction. Right. But, you know, I had to start standing up for myself with literally the language of a toddler. I don't like that.
0: (laughs) Mom, I need you to be nice to me.
1: And sometimes I I have people do that. Like, say it in baby feelings, say it in child feelings, because sometimes that's what comes up is you can't have this big well, mom, you know, right now I'm experiencing this trouble with executive functioning. Like, sure, that can come later, (laughs) but I needed to say, I don't like that. That's not nice. And she was able to switch it up, but we got to teach people how to treat us. We've got to see what we need. They're not going to read our mind. They've got their shit, you know?
0: Right. And most of us didn't have a childhood,
1: right? They certainly didn't, yeah.
0: Right, and most of our parents didn't either.
1: Yeah, hurt people hurt people. Isn't that something? You know, and and here's what I say to clients. I can't remember where I heard this. It might have been a Buddhist thing, but there's a lot of unskillful living out there. (laughs) It doesn't mean people are bad or out to get you. And the other one is never attribute to malice what's better explained by ignorance.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And it doesn't
1: mean across the board ignorance, but ignorance of how to be... There's a lot of unskillful living when it comes to dealing with feelings in this country. Just look at the very top, Commander-in-Chief.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's some, uh, there's some unskillful
1: truth. living going on there, and he's got some skills in other areas. I'll give him credit for that. Sure,
0: but I believe that he's a, probably a, another suffering person. Yes. Yeah. Same, I, same. Yeah.
1: It doesn't look like he's physically healthy either, and now I can pick up on that. He's got a lot of redness and swelling in his face. He probably has food allergies. Maybe even autoimmune, but that's just my opinion.
0: Right. We have our opinions. Yep. Yep. Right? Yep.
1: And I just bless him and and put him in God's hands because guess what? Oh, I love Brene Brown and I love Byron Katie. Okay. And I get them to mix up because they're they're both <laughs> interesting names that begin with a B. Right. Um, But Byron Katie said, there's my business, your business, and God's business. When I'm wrapped up around the axle about something, I got to stop and pray and say, whose business am I in? I got to just stay in my business. Yeah, that's
0: like when I say you got to stay on your side of the street.
1: Yeah, stay in your lane. Yeah, stay in your your lane. Right. it's different words and metaphors for the same thing. And I like, you know, having for the longest time I was living in Seattle on Capitol Hill and commuting to Federal Way. And that was actually a gift because of Audible.com and audiobooks. I got so much reading done that way. <laughs> Seriously, and I still me too. do. It, like when I'm walking, doing. Mm-hmm. Do, you do Audible too? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I have a podcast. book on uh, Audible. I have it. <laughs> <laughs> I have it, DJ. It's a big inspiration. Actually, yes. DJ's book is a big inspiration for me because I, I think the most formative um, wounds in addiction for me was I misread. My parents' unskillful living as I I'm not worthy of love. Yeah, I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. I have to perform or be pretty or be perfect or please or caretake, caretake or or like jump through hoops to please men to be worthy and that, that life is too hard and painful. So you just got to grab your pleasure wherever you can get it. Mm.
0: That is so true, right? So true.
1: It, it makes me sad now because it's so many years believing what my fears told me. You know, fear, false evidence appearing real.
0: Yes, <laughs> I know, absolutely know a kid that. You're and,
1: and you see people behaving a certain way or not behaving a certain way, and you draw conclusions about that based on your, you know, limited human mind and limited child mind without a fully developed frontal cortex, you, you you draw conclusions about that and you make decisions about how to live and how to behave. Yeah. And that's a lot of the currency I work with in therapy or, or what were the early conclusions? You, you drew about life, yourself, other people, and, and your parents, but mostly yourself um, and God. Yeah. And, and and what were the decisions you made about how to live or behave or relate based on that? and. Usually, that's a pattern like a, a, a rock skipping across water that reverberates throughout experience. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think of that? you relate to that?
0: I, I do relate to that. I mean, I have lived most of my life in fear, right? Most of it in fear. And I, I'm glad that we're talking about this because when we, we work together at an agency and... That place brought up so much fear in me.
1: Oh, my God. I never talked about this really, but it brought up a lot of fear in me, too. Really? What was yours about? So,
0: my fear was that I wasn't good enough, Yeah. that I didn't know what the hell I was doing, mm-hmm. Um, and no one was interested in helping me figure it out.
1: Wow. Yeah. I totally relate to that. Um. I- a lot of those came up for me and i think it was we were serving this was a community agency we were serving overall now i worked for the veterans program there so it was a little different demographic it was less chronic mental illness although there was some because there's there's a lot of veterans actually one of my areas of research and specialization i'm working on a doctorate now or starting a program so i'll tell you about that later but one of the areas that i really want to work with is the difference between People who go into the military and may have some kind of trauma, but had a pretty well childhood. Yeah. Versus people who, in the eloquent words of one of my fellow therapists, who this guy is a veteran, my cake was already baked. Vietnam just put on the icing. Oh. As in complex trauma, early childhood stuff, attachment issues, and then throw into the military. Right. It, it's two different sets, and I see a lot of um, differences in those two subgroups and the outcomes. And but anyway. Um, what I felt working for Valley Cities was um, this big awful hole of need. And yes. that nothing I could do could fill it. I wasn't getting paid enough to pay for cost of living in Seattle plus oh, student loans. Me either. Plus. Yeah, it's brutal. I feel like the mental health system in this country, and, and my mentors said, it when it went from fee-for-service to tiering, Yeah, like the tiering system In Medicaid for chronically mentally ill populations is when all of that shifted. Because it used to be community and mental health paid just as well as. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 in the 60s and 70s. Talk to the old school. Wow. Um, But my supervisor at um, Seattle Children's Home had been in Kitsap Mental Health, which is a a fabulous community agency on the Kitsap Peninsula. And she said Medicaid used to just do fee for service, just like an insurance company. But when they switched to tiering, It, all of a sudden, I, I don't know all the ins and outs in finance of it, but it but it's worth talking to people who are in community mental health in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s because they said there is a way to fix it because it used to not be broken.
0: Right, But and it's stressful as hell the way it is now. Oh and, my God, and it, you can't uh, keep
1: up with the paperwork and caseload.
0: Overworked, right, yeah. uh, underpaid. The
1: only time I ever got in trouble at a job, like ever, was when I was about to hit bottom and I was three months behind on paperwork at Sound Mental Health. And I was also sleeping through meetings because I was on so much benzo and pain pill and alcohol. I mean, I was like Whitney Houston, like wow. I honestly, probably came very very close to dying exactly like Whitney Houston and she was one of my childhood idols I yeah. used to sing and perform like yeah. I used to think I'm, I was gonna be like a famous singer or dancer or <laughs> it's kind of amazing when you think about it now but um, that's what I was passionate about was the arts yeah and I shut off that part of myself because I was I felt ashamed you're never gonna make a living doing that what is that fluff mm-hmm. an engineer. you know something old 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 scripts old beliefs but here's the thing I would take baths and, and drink wine take benzos and, and and pain pills until I fell asleep I very easily could have stopped breathing and died like Whitney Houston and there was something that shook loose in me when when she died of course that was after I was sober yeah but just the realization the gravity of it all but but the one time i ever got in trouble at a job even in the depth of my addiction and i was in a lot of trouble at sound mental health because i was working with offender services i had department of corrections clearance to work with go into prisons and jails and do assessments and then do like anger management and group therapy with people who were dangerous offenders yeah mentally ill offenders and honestly some of them that was a huge perspective shift and understanding how people get stuck in the justice system and the intersection of race, culture, poverty, um, drug abuse, uh, trauma, blew, blew apart. Any illusions I had about that. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But my, I remember my boss and, um, her boss, Rochelle and Kevin's um, amazing people sat me down and said, we know something's wrong. This isn't you you're three months behind on paperwork. And I'm like, well, community mental health is really messed up, and, and it was. <laughs> but I wasn't showing up for meetings. I was checked out, and they knew it. And, and, and that's when I finally got the courage to say, I can't stop. Mm. I'm using drugs and alcohol, and I can't stop, mm. and I need help. And at that point, the minute I admitted I need help and I remember going to a few meetings and I would still drink afterwards. I even got together with this guy I didn't even like and did cocaine all night and felt miserable. Oh, cocaine? I'm like on cocaine at baseline. Normally I like things that bring me down, <laughs> like like the benzos and, and it, it, they say there's, you know, a couple kinds of drug addicts, the ones who need to li- like to go up and the ones who mm. like to come down mm-hmm. and, and like the heroin, the, the I never actually did heroin. Thank but, God. I, I, oh, I was too afraid to put things in my veins. My ex-husband, well, I won't talk about his story here. I love him. I bless him. hope he's well. But pay, doing the pills and the, and the nice red wine and the nice cocktails and looking pretty help me stay in denial fat longer. And I think I could fancy up my concepts of what I was actually doing. Oh, I have prescriptions for all of these, but I was being incredibly dishonest in order to get those. I had three doctors around town in Seattle, all in different medical systems. And I knew how to say, we're counselors. Right. Like I took a bunch of medical classes before I went into counseling. Like we know what to say. And I was never pegged as a drug seeker. No one was on to me for that.
0: Mm-mm.
1: Thank God the people at Sound Mental Health who were my employers were finally on to me. Because even though at the time I was like, they're out to get me, them fuckers. They don't understand. <laughs> they helped me recover. And I, and I that's a blessing. am forever grateful. Actually, um, I've contacted both of them to make amends. They don't work. I, I can't find them. Oh, wow. But, but you know what? Eight Steps says we stand at the ready okay we stand at the ready and make the approach so with some people i'm still standing at the ready because i haven't yet been able to get in contact Or sure
0: you might see him at the grocery store
1: you know what <laughs> and if i do i'm at the ready uh,
0: yes <laughs>
1: better, better have my hair on point because i bet might want to sit down and have just kidding hair is the least of it but have my spiritual program on point to where i could immediately humble myself and do the amends right, right. there if i if i was called to if that's what they wanted
0: and when we were at the same place working together, we were in different departments. Yeah, But we saw each other. Oh, yeah. Uh, were you in recovery then?
1: I started there in 2009. I got sober in February 2009, so I was in very, very early recovery. Okay. I started there, I think, April 2009. Okay, very yeah. Very early recovery.
0: I started there in, like, December of 2009.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I was there Oh nine to... I think I stopped in 2011. That's when I went into private practice or no, 2012 is when, yeah. well, I, there was a transitionary period where I was doing sure. both just like you. And yeah, you,
0: absolutely. Which
1: was a lot. You
0: know, when I saw you it, walking down the hallways, I saw you as powerful. I saw, I was like, oh my God, I love her style. Oh,
1: <laughs> I've always, I've always thought that fashion is a form of art.
0: Yes. I believe that. Cause when I saw you, I was like, she is on point.
1: Thank you, yes. DJ. Oh my God. It's always nice to hear how other people think of you. Cause I saw you and I'm like, oh my God, this, this guy is my people. Cause I was like, I could see him on Capitol Hill, like going out, like, like, you know, sort of culturally we could relate music, you know, just like we're the same age. I, I, I always felt like I couldn't relate to a lot of people there. There's a few that I could. But, really? Yeah. I was a
0: fucking mess at that place.
1: Wow. Well, i
0: tried my best well let's
1: just I, imagine that remember like the family systems theory and um like there can be a sick system and if you don't fit in a sick system it actually means that you're healthy yes and it's oh. not so much that agency in particular just the culture of community mental health in general is unmanageable it's unmanageability right
0: and when i got sober in all of my programs people would say to me well we thought something was going on and and we di- we couldn't say anything to you and i was like oh okay or they said we tried but you weren't listening and i believe that right oh you know but yeah, me too. i i imagine that if if everyone there wasn't so overworked mm-hmm. uh my supervisors would have been able to maybe come to me like yours came to you at your previous job. Yeah. And and so everybody I'm... Everybody
1: was in survival mode.
0: Right. Right. They were all dealing with their own shit.
1: I mean, everybody had shit piled so high that you couldn't even, like, breathe the fresh air above it. And sometimes you got to get out of the sewer to smell yeah. fresh air and realize... Yeah. How bad it is, and and that was one of the better community mental health agencies. Yes,
0: absolutely. I my su- God. I support the community mental health system uh, to a degree. I support uh, th-
1: reform of it. Right, and <laughs> I they need and more. I
0: appreciate that agency for giving me a, a chance and making a difference in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where all of my like a, addictive stuff was just like spilling over, right, and so. I do my best now to give back to the community the best way I know how, um, as an amends. And you know, so
1: that's that's actually really inspiring. And I think what I want to do now is kind of maybe pray about that because I've had something on my mind for a while, which is like um, once I have some financial goals and I'm on a budget now, and I've got to. My boyfriend, um, Topher and I, he's really a partner. I've got to call him a partner. (laughs) He's stepped up to the plate big time for my cancer. He's helped me to get on budgeting software called You Need a Budget to track my income. He's- Really? He's he's, Okay, so Myers-Briggs is one thing. It's not the be all end all, but um, I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. He's INTJ, so we're exact opposite. So (laughs) all the things that I find difficult, he's super good at and vice versa. So we help each other. I help him quickly compose a really good email to a tenant. His family has a property management business. He also works in internet security and he, like freezes up when he's got to do like communication, like interpersonal communication. Sure. And I freeze up when I've got to do with money, numbers, finances, taxes. Isn't that the truth? And he's great at it. Like he, he's literally been putting his income into QuickBooks since he was like 12 <laughs> and, and using spreadsheets. So he's like, it ain't no thing we're going to do this and I'm going to help you with your taxes. And So so it's a beautiful thing to, to accept help from others. That's a new behavior for me and I still have to always, always work it. willing to accept help and trust that other people could help you because my experience or what what my early conclusion was is not only can other people not help you but it's better not to even let them try because they could make it worse right that hasn't actually been the truth for me since like 1985 (laughs) but I used to run that software like it was it's like running Windows 95 on a brand new machine (laughs) It's going to be buggy. Right. (laughs) It's going to be buggy. There's going to be system crashes. So now what I tell myself, my new conclusion is it's okay to speak your truth and it's okay to try out trusting people. They will show you if they can be trusted in certain areas and trust is not all or nothing. Um, you can kind of wade into the trust pool instead of jump all the way in, and that's healthy. Right,
0: it's built over time.
1: Yep, yeah, and and some people ha- have helped you. Life is a team sport; we can't do it all alone. And that's what they teach in recovery. Is, yes. It, my early sponsor said, "I don't care what your higher power is, as long as it's not you, Christy." Ooh, okay. Like, what well, can it be? <laughs> but, but but that's true. That's true. That and is now true. My higher power. <laughs> grows and expands my concept of my higher power grows and expands every year my higher power has always been infinitely big wow. but my concept of such hasn't always been so yeah do you have anything else you want to ask me i have no. like just talked about you
0: everything. you are amazing you're amazing and i'm so grateful you that you <laughs> you took the time to to come over to seattle and and have this conversation with me And to to share your experience, strength, and hope with my audience. And I think they will be all touched by your story.
1: Oh, my God. DJ, today, most of my life, I wanted the Starship Enterprise to come pick me up and get me the hell off of this planet. (laughs) I still think that would be cool. And and Captain Picard, (laughs) Next Generation, represent, you know, I love all of the Star Treks, but Next Generation was my jam at that age. And I still love Captain Picard and he's my first celebrity crush but but today I'm comfortable in my skin most of the time I do what it takes and I am stoked to be alive and stoked to do what I do and that's a miracle yes because for most of my life I had to get my joy and pleasure sort of in these below the belt ways as this author I like Caroline Meese um MYSS she's worth looking up she calls it below the belt the first three chakras you know kind of like the lower urges, you know, just, just, it, it's kind of like, I got my pleasure, like, it, like, um, the kind of pleasure I was getting in my addiction was like high fructose corn syrup. And now the kind of pleasure I'm getting is like the most nourishing whole foods and like super high quality dark chocolate. Like it really, huh. it's not that cheap ass candy, you know, <laughs> but that's what I was getting in my addiction. It sure it kept me going and like, Oh, it's sugar, right. you know. But it wasn't sustaining, yeah. and, and what I have now is sustaining. And I've got to say to anybody out there, where there is life, there is always hope. Nobody, nobody is is too far gone for hope. N- anybody can change people. There's a lot of dichotomizing literature out there now about oh narcissists and oh evil narcissists are hurting these oh, good kind empaths. Fuck that noise. We all have all of that in us. And Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious and the shadow. We have to acknowledge our shadow or it will eat us alive. But here's the thing, we all have aspects of all of that in us and there is nobody who's beyond hope if they sincerely want help. If they sincerely seek help and are willing to be honest, nobody is beyond hope. I really believe that now. Most of my life, this is sad to say, I was a staunch atheist because I didn't believe I was eligible for a relationship with a higher power. So it was easier to just say, "Well, that's just a bunch of propaganda." Yeah, yeah. I was afraid that I was too broken. I thought I was a. I thought I was a sociopath. I really did. Hmm. And I got some early messages. Well, nobody could really understand an eight-year-old who asks for an amethyst geode for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little left of center and people and and i knew things and 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 i knew things that were uncomfortable for the adults around me but now i know i wasn't a sociopath i might have had some of those behaviors at times but it wasn't who i was at the core i think at the core of every person on this planet even a serial killer is a beautiful soul
0: we're all unique Uh,
1: yes we are and what we do and our behaviors in this lifetime could be very dangerous and hurtful. And I think there needs to be boundaries around that. Yes. And I think we can have ultimate compassion for ourselves and others and ultimate boundaries.
0: I love it. I love it. I love you. Oh, thank you you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And let's let's stay on the ready for the person who comes into our office who's still suffering and help them each day, uh, one day at a time. I
1: I, I can get behind that, DJ. That's beautiful. Thank you. All
0: right. Have a wonderful day.
1: You too.
0: Thank you for joining the discussion today on making an addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com, or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and thedjburr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Attic is produced by DJ Burr and the Recovery Legacy Network. Today's music features tracks by CDK. Learn more at MakingAnAttic.com.